But I believe that by overwhelming majority in all the Americas, you and I in the long run, and if it be necessary, you and I will act together to protect, to defend by every means at our command. Welcome to the History in Motion podcast, where we discuss leaders, their decisions, and how they shape the world we live in today. Welcome to Episode 8 of the History in Motion podcast. In today's episode, we're going to be looking at a very unique decision, the United States and their decision to conduct Operation Paperclip, a secret government program aimed at recruiting scientists, engineers, and technicians from Nazi Germany who had worked on advanced weapons and technology during World War II. Was this the deal with the devil? And was it worth it? Join us in our discussion to find out if this decision gave the United States an overall strategic advantage in what would immediately follow World War II, the Cold War with Russia. With further ado, let's get into it. Welcome, everybody, to another episode of the History in Motion podcast. Today, we're doing, again, something a little bit different in the sense of not so much picking a particular person and focusing on a decision that they made by themselves. We're talking more about a collective decision that was made, and this is something called Operation Paperclip, which basically was at the end of World War II. There were a bunch of Nazi scientists who were basically up for grabs. Either they were going to stay in Germany or be captured by either the British, the French, the Americans, or the Soviet Union. And so basically what the U.S. did was they wanted to bring all of these scientists um, into the U.S. But again, it wasn't one person's decision. So we're kind of looking at the decision as a whole. But then there's an individual that became very important um, as a rocket engineer within Nazi Germany, but then also became a key member of NASA, of NASA and the Apollo missions in the space race. And that's Werner von Braun. So today we're going to kind of talk about his life a little bit and kind of how he fits into Operation Paperclip and, and bringing over these uh, Nazi scientists. But I think, Richie, we're going to start first with talking about what Operation Paperclip is and, and why it was so important um, as the war came to a close. Yeah, 100%. So I think a great starting point, just a bit of an overview of Operation Paperclip and the collective decision making that ultimately led to the final decision of actually bringing in the Nazi scientists and technicians into the US. So Operation Paperclip was a secret intelligence program um, conducted by the United States. It was executed by the JIOA, the Joint Intelligence Objectives Agency, and it was carried out by special agents in the CIC, which is the US Army's Counterintelligence Corps, as well as the OSS. So that's the Office of Strategic Services, which was the forerunner to the CIA. Um, so essentially, it was a program aimed at bringing over 1,600 German scientists, engineers, and technicians, some members or leaders of the Nazi party, uh, essentially being taken from Nazi Germany to the U.S. for government employment after the end of World War II. And it kind of ranged uh, roughly from 1945 to 1959 while this program was in full operation. So really, when we're talking about Operation Paperclip, I think, at least from my perspective, there is a couple of key points to keep in mind uh, from this kind of holistic lens. One, this was an organized, concerted effort 
amongst the highest ranks of the American government, right? This collective kind of body and decision-making group to turn Nazi scientists into American assets that would support the effort against the Russians in the, in the Cold War. You know, essentially their goal was to harness German intellectual resources to help develop America's arsenal of rockets and other biological and chemical weapon systems, and to ensure that coveted information did not fall into the hands of the Soviet Union. So this was officially sanctioned by Harry Truman, um, although he did forbid the agency from recruiting any Nazi members or active Nazi supporters, um, the JIOA and the OSS kind of bypassed that directive by whitewashing and eliminating some of that evidence, you know, that might bring to light some of the sketchy, you know, um, paths of the scientists that they want to bring over. Under the assumption and, you know, guys that the intelligence that they were going to bring over was so crucial to the country's post-war effort that they could overlook that, let's call it, you know, ethical complexity of, of bringing in someone who could potentially be tied to the, the Nazi part. So obviously this brings up many contentious issues surrounding, you know, this clandestine operation. You know, it's often argued um, by supporters of the operation that the balance of power could have easily shifted to the Soviet Union in a post-World War II era world if those Nazi scientists were not brought to the United States. I think that obviously ignores the more uncomfortable reality that the ethical cost of ignoring potential crimes or war crimes without punishment or accountability could look really, really bad on the U.S., given their anti-Nazi, you know, um, policies that were in place at the time. And some of the notable mentions around people that came in as a part of this program, we're going to be talking about Werner von Braun, who was the director at NASA. Uh, there's also Dr. Walter Dorn Dornberger. He was influential in the German V2 program. Um, Anton Flettner. He was actually a German av aviation engineer um, and inventor. During World War II, he actually headed the German Luftwaffe helicopter reconnaissance program. And there was uh, Werner Dahm. So he was a member of von Braun's team in Germany. And he would come to join him at NASA and would eventually become the chief of aerophysics of the aerophysics division at the Marshall Space Center until 1992. So very recent history. It's pretty crazy, like how recent some of this stuff comes up, because like even when we talk about Von Braun, right, he wasn't a super old guy when they brought him over um, and a lot of his mm -hmm. team, right, like influential like you're talking a guy who's around for like the space shuttle program and, and everything like that coming from a world where rockets didn't even exist to a world where we're sending up space shuttles is, is quite amazing where things have come in such a short period of time but like how like how influential this project was in terms of just looking at the space race and over you know 50 to 60 years i think that's what makes this period of history so interesting for me at least is that the implications of it and you know what kind of came out as a part of world war ii impacts us you know so intimately still you mm -hmm. know although you know i don't i'm not i don't go to nasa or you know have never done <laughs> a rocket and or launched one you know those implications are still quite near and dear to our everyday lives mm -hmm. yeah and especially like us talking over the internet and satellites and all that kind of stuff right yep. it all comes back to this mission in, in some facet, um, I'm sure we would have got there eventually, but 
would it have been as quickly or would it have taken more time? You know, we'll never know, but yep. the influence cannot be understated. So I think, yeah, should we get into to Von Braun now and talk a bit about him? Yeah, I, I think it makes sense to jump into, into him. Um, I think he'll present a unique case study um, yeah. around this particular program um, that we can kind of center our analysis on. And then I think from there, we could jump back into their strategic incentive, the the rationale, you know, that I think right. I, I gleaned from the research as to why mm -hmm. would they do this and, and what was the objective overall. Yeah, I think that makes sense. And again, as I'm as I was kind of researching Von Braun, he is the kind of typical, you know, we'll call we'll call him a nerd. He was for sure, but a very, very effective one, um, where, you know, had almost an unhealthy obsession with the love of rockets and rocketry and space. Um so he was. I think he was going to be a nerd, right? Like when yeah. you say love of rockets and rocket ships, like what else are you going to spend your time doing at that point? Like it, it's exactly. <laughs> well, and it's interesting with him, right? So he's born in 1912. So this is still very, um, you know, kind of high society Germany with you know the Kaiser still around, and you have still a lot of the royal families poking around in Germany. So he was raised into a very wealthy family. Um, but he was given a telescope as a kid and then just kind of became hooked with space and, and the thought of space travel. Um, and so one thing that was interesting about him was he actually got a degree in mechanical engineering um, in 1932, which was like very different for the time. Not a lot of high society, high, high wealth people went into engineering. It was mostly you'd become a lawyer or you find your way into politics or into the military in some way. But he became a mechanical engineer and then went on to to study physics where he kind of brought those two things together to really come into a love of rocketry and continue to study that, um, getting a grant from the government to start his own um, facility and start doing research. Um, in 1934, they were able to launch two liquid-fueled rockets more than a mile and a half, which doesn't seem like a lot when we look at how far we're launching rockets, but I'm sure you've seen all those montages of rockets and just not getting off the ground. And like even with you know all the stuff Elon Musk has been doing with SpaceX, like there was a time where his rockets were just blowing up on the launch pad. So to get something off the ground and at least fly it um, a mile and a half is quite impressive. So that's kind of coincides with the Nazi party um, rising to power in 1934. So there's been a lot of look, like a lot of research done into like who Von Braun was at the time. And we don't really see much in him taking an interest in Nazi ideology or anti-Semitism, but I, at the time the Nazi party was rising to power, more money was going into the military rockets became a very large piece of the next war or the future war or what the military could do. And as money became, you know, was flowing into that, those programs, um, he was getting more and more money from the government to start um, doing research. And at the age of 25, he became a technical director of his own rocket center um, that was basically building rockets. So like, this is where we can see this guy's a, a unicorn amongst you know, maybe once in a generation type of person to be able to managing an entire facility at the age of 25. And the thing I've found from my research is everybody keeps quoting is they never said he was the best engineer. He wasn't the smartest physicist. He wasn't the smartest rocket scientist, but he was one of the best engineering managers. People say the world maybe ever seen. He was really good at getting a bunch of really smart people to work together and accomplish goals. So I think him getting to that point at 25 really shows that like he was able to just bring people together and, and get them to work hard. He was very charismatic, apparently was a very good looking guy too, um, as a young man. So no, it doesn't hurt. Right. So he's at that point where, yeah, exactly. Um, so he's leading this, um, 
this rocket center and he gets basically has to make a choice now where he's starting to become more popular within the government and he's asked to join the Nazi party, which he does. Um, and kind of the way historians look at it is they say like, well, of course he did, right? It's little commitment to him. Even if he doesn't believe in everything the Nazi party is doing, this is going to get him the, the resources that he needs. And it's kind of like the cool thing to do or like what you did at the time. Um, so this is where I think a good question comes up is people say, oh, he was a Nazi. And I think so. If you're a card carrying Nazi, he has a, you know, like a driver's license to say like Nazi and then <laughs> there's his name. Right. But I think there's a differentiation you need to make here of are you a card carrying Nazi versus a believer of the Nazi the ideology and the doctrine, yeah. right? Like, is he committed to the destruction of the Jewish race? Is he trying to push Aryan um, kind of dominance throughout Germany? Or is he just kind of like, this is just kind of what you have to do. And hey, I'm getting things I need from the Nazi party. So I'll join up, you know, say what I need to say, but go back to building my rockets. And that's kind of where um, a lot of people that look at um, von Braun's upbringing is kind of where they see him, that he was just kind of disinterested in, you know, everything that, um, you know, the Nazi party had to do with terms of like ideology and that kind of stuff. But I was kind of doing a little bit of research and like, how do you, how does one even get into the Nazi party? How many people were there? So there was about eight to 10 million members, I believe around like from about 60 million in Germany. Um, 2 million of them were women, which I found was interesting. Um, wow. but they were wow. very, very particular. High. Yeah, I was that shocked by that. Very I thought, like, high. Wow. You think I'm a very hard right fascist regime, right? It's men of certain age, of certain ethnicity, and that's it. But apparently there's a lot of women involved. But they did very meticulous background research. Like, I think they would go back to your great-grandparents to make sure that you were, like, full-blooded German. Um, and so, you know, any Jewish last name or anything like that, even if it was, like, your great-great-grandparent, you might be – you're definitely not joining the Nazi party, and there might even be – larger implications for you as well but and if you immigrate if you know, your grandparents came from another country your great-grandparents came from you know italy france russia too bad you're not a true Aryan. you're not going to join the party so it really shows you how deep this ethnic kind of dominance and just supremacy just took over everything that this party did which i don't think is very surprising but i think as you dig more into what the nazis really believed in you can see that it's that's where everything was built off of so well that's kind of where interesting you point that, right? paul yeah, I think just on that point of, you know, was he a card-carrying Nazi? I think this is one of those tough, very uncomfortable historical discussions. Um, when you look at someone like Warner von Braun and, you know, other examples, uh, you know, whether they're academics, philosophers, mm -hmm. who, you know, people of industry who could be, you know, card carrying Nazis. Does that mean we discount the other things that they did that were net positive over their lifetimes? I'm not saying yeah. one way or the other, you know what I mean? Mm -hmm. I think this is why this particular topic is so interesting Yeah, is because it really gets to the heart of that, um, that kind of idea is mm -hmm. can, you know, just because we know someone was associated with something as horrible as the Nazi party, can we completely and totally disregard any other, um, you know, output or um, what's the word, I guess, contribution that they've made that mm -hmm. has actually furthered society. And with right. Werner von Braun, obviously, you know, we know 
the things that he would do with rockets, which would change, mm-hmm. you know, the world completely. So, I, you know, again, not one, not saying one way or the other, but I think, again, that is kind of the crux of, of what we are ultimately trying to get at. For sure. It's like, it's like the classic, like, let's look at the individual and see what they did, because there's a heck of a lot of people in this party where you read five seconds into their bio and you're like, oh, they were hung at Nuremberg. Okay. That, that makes a lot of sense. And like, <laughs> glad to see that that kind of happened, but yeah, you just, you don't know for sure. And I think you, you look at anybody in society, right? Like, oh, they may be a member of some really ethical charity or something, but have done some really terrible things. Um, it's like, it's the, it goes both ways. Right. And I don't know if yeah. you can, you know, how can you do it? But the, the thing with the Nazi party is it's, you know, what they stand for, you know, what they did and it's all deplorable exactly. yeah. and you were a member of that party. So, yeah. but like I said, let's look at the individual of, of Von Braun. So, yeah. like I said, he's joined the Nazi party. Um, he's known throughout, um, the party, um, from the people in the military, Albert Speer, who kind of runs the whole military industrial complex, um, is a big fan of his Hitler knows who he is. Um, Himmler stays very close to him as well. Who's the leader of like the SS and the Gestapo. Um, so they basically starting to give him resources to start developing, um, his rockets. Um, and so what they are able to do, um, is they were able to develop the first, well, one of the first supersonic um, anti-aircraft missiles and then a ballistic missile, which is known as the V-2. So just to give a little history on the V-1 and the V-2, the V-1 was called like, they called it a buzz bomb, which essentially was like, you know, like a bomb with like wings and like a little bit of a jet engine. And they would just kind of launch it off a launcher and it would just go towards London, run out of fuel, and then just drop randomly in the city. And they were quite devastating, right? Because you just didn't know when they were coming and you could, and it was quite terrifying for people in London because you would hear it and then you're, and then you would, you wouldn't hear it anymore and it would just fall and then bang. Did they know a, where it was going to land? The V ones? Yeah. No, typically not. Like the Germans no. didn't, they were, they knew it landed somewhere in London. Would it be North London, South London? They so wouldn't it, wasn't really very, know it, was, it wasn't accurate, really. No, and they I don't think it was really designed to be, right? Yeah, Got it wouldn't okay. be, it wasn't yeah. really designed to be. It was just get it up there. And the, and the great thing for Hitler was it was this terrifying weapon because they didn't know it was, where it was going to land. Nobody in England could really track where it was going to go. They eventually figured out ways to kind of shoot them down and stuff, but sometimes they just wouldn't know. So that's the V1. And the V2 comes along in around 1945. And essentially this is supersonic. So this is an extra level of terror in the sense that these rockets were so fast, they traveled faster than the speed of sound, which means you don't hear them. They just blow up and then you, and then you'll hear the sound because it's traveling faster than essentially the sound that it's created. So if you really think about like, if you look at like the first Apollo rockets that they used, or not even the Apollo missions, even before that, like the first rockets that they used to send satellites and men into space. Where essentially the V2 obviously souped up to be a lot larger and safer and more accurate, but its shell is essentially a V2 with the warhead taken out and a person or a satellite put in um, in its place. So this is kind of how modern rocketry really starts. Um, but the thing with the V2s is again they weren't really that accurate either. They would a lot of them would miss their targets. They would blow up on the launch pad, a lot of it due to poor quality and stuff like that as they were being developed, which we'll get into in a bit, but that's really the important piece in what Von Braun was developing. But before he kind of, those kind of get put into production, um, he actually gets approached by someone to join the SS, um, which really has a very dark and disturbing, um, kind of reputation. 
So that kind of leads into what Himmler was doing. And you look at a lot of the death squads and yeah. a lot of the atrocities that happened by the Germans during World War II. The SS has their, their fingerprints all over it. But I did a little bit more research into like what the SS actually was. And it, again, it's a blanket term for a bunch of different subgroups. Um, and so the version that the subgroup that Von Braun was part of was more of just a, I wouldn't say ceremonial, but just kind of a, hey, you're a military high, you know, a leader in the military. You need to be part of this SS group. Um, you know, he's not part of, you know, a death squad or people going in and doing like actual fighting. It was more just a a badge. Um, but eventually he was essentially a major in the SS, which is, which is a little weird. And for me, when I first saw that, I was like, whoa, that's, that's bad news for, for Von Braun. Like you're part of the SS, yeah. but I kind of looked into it a bit more and it's, it's not as simple as it, as it seems. And there's a lot more you could dive into kind of learning about the SS. And part of it though, was Himmler kind of wanted to keep his eye on him as well. So Himmler kind of always keeping an eye on everything that's going on. Um, and we'll get into why that's important um, in a little bit, but this is where we get into the big red flag on Von Braun's legacy. And that is the use of Jewish slave labor. So there yeah. was a V2 factory that was essentially creating um, all of these, uh, these weapons. And I believe it was in like Northeast Germany and it was pretty safe. They're building their stuff there. And then eventually as Germany started to lose the air war um, and the Naval, piece as well in the, in the North Sea. It was getting bombed consistently and they realized, okay, we can't build rockets here anymore. We're going to move it in, inland where we can defend it. And so essentially they went to like a, an old hollowed out mine and they stuck all the manufacturing in this mine. So it'd be protected from, from bombers and from spy planes and things like that. But Germany was had basically no manpower left at this point. Everybody who was of able body was fighting the war. So where do you turn to, you know, your, your prisoners of war, and your yeah. Jewish slave labor. And so there's essentially a labor camp at Mit Mittelreck. I'm sure it's pronounced much differently in German, but that's essentially <laughs> what the place was called. And they used slave labor to build these rockets. And I was doing some reading on this and it's, they said it was bad for a concentration camp. So let just let that sink in, right? Concentration camp. Think of anything worse than a concentration camp. I don't think I can uh... think of anything worse than a concentration camp because what this basically did was they worked these people to death essentially and if they died they kind of just left them there so somebody would be working on a machine next day they die and they're just like oh just leave them there like what do we care right like this is the level of the nazi ideology at this point we're in 1945 1944 like things are getting desperate people are kind of getting to the next level and so technically von braun was in charge of what came out of that facility in terms of the rockets he wasn't involved in like the day-to-day -day, um, labor and everything like that, but he absolutely knew what was going on there. He, in fact, had visited that site multiple times and knew exactly what was going on. And so this is where a lot of people criticize him. It's like, you knew about this. Why didn't you stop it? I think that's a question we'll get into in a little bit later. I think we have to take the holistic approach into it, but it's really something important that, you know, he knew this was going on. He didn't stop yeah. it, but it's very important to say that he did not put his hand up and there's no record of this. And the one good thing they say with the Nazis is they keep incredible records was there's no records that were found where Von Braun said, Hey, get me more slave labor, get me more Jewish labor into this site. We need to, you know, nothing like that. It was more just, let me build my rockets. If you're going to give me the labor, I'll use it. You know, this, I understand this is what I need to do. And then the other piece too, is he is a major in the SS. He has a duty to his country however, you know, messed up that's going to be. Yeah. He still has that 
that duty to do so. There are some other folks that were, I think um, we'll get into it a little bit later, but there are some folks that were kind of more in charge of that. those camps. Some were, were tried and, and, and sentenced to life in prison or, or given the death penalty for their work in those facilities. Um, and some were found out years later, but it was definitely a, a horrible, horrible place that Von Braun absolutely knew what was going on. And his rockets were the things that were being produced there. That's a very, that's a tough pill to swallow, I imagine. Um, and the, the, my immediate thought is, you know, if I'm trying to look at this objectively as possible, a bit of systems theory, like he's essentially a cog in a machine, right? He is mm -hmm. entrenched and connected within this very large industrial Nazified apparatus that even if he did say something, he's probably just going to get killed, right? Like, what, you know, what, what, what would someone in his position do? Um, yeah, not a not an easy level of analysis in any respect. Mm -hmm. But that was my immediate thought. I don't know if you had any that kind of came to mind right off the bat. Yeah, I, I I pictured this in my head of, you know, Hitler getting a report saying the V2 factory has been shut down because von Braun doesn't like the use of slave labor. You know, I think I think we all know how that goes down. Having said that, <laughs> he could have just said, hey, look, I don't want any part of this. But this is, I think, a good transition point to he actually does get arrested in 1944 by the Gestapo. Yes. Yep. So he was apparently not cooperating with... Um, with Himmler. Himmler wanted to take over the V2 project. Um, and then there's also a rumor that he was allegedly drunk one night um, and made a, basically made a comment about how Germany, everybody knows Germany is going to lose the war and he just wants to build his spaceship. He's that's what he, again, that's what people are saying. He just, he just wants to build the spaceships. Um, so the kind of the piece was, you know, Oh, he's, he's a victim of everything that's going on with the Nazi party. And he's, you know, not helping out, but he's not for us. He could work against us if he, if he was given the opportunity, which is absolutely what he did. Well, um, then. <laughs> yeah. Right. So again, this is more, that's rumor. I don't think that's definitely proof, but he did spend two weeks in a Gestapo cell um, being interrogated. Then Albert Speer, who's the minister of war production, basically stepped in and said, guys, what are we doing here? This guy is so essential to everything we're doing with the V2 program. Like, I need him back. And so he was freed and, and let go. But like, this is... This is the the thin kind of piece that all of these high-ranking Nazis were going through at the time. So we have to remember there's Operation Valkyrie has already happened where mm -hmm. German generals tried to kill Hitler. It failed, and then Hitler was kind of essentially more psychotic than he's ever been at that point, looking over his shoulder and just started murdering people left, right, and center that he thought would, could potentially be a threat. And so I think this is something that's in the mind of, of all high-ranking Nazis at this point. And I think that's where I come back to, like, the slave labor stuff, like – you know, we'll get into like kind of how he looks back on that. Cause I think that's very important, but, mm -hmm. um, you know, in the, in the moment, putting your hand up and saying, I think this is wrong when, you know, high ranking people are getting killed all over the place. He's getting imprisoned. It does make it very difficult to, uh, to kind of put your hand up and say, I want to do the right thing here when your life could be on the line. hundred percent. It's, it's self-interest, right. To a certain degree, survival, 
obviously mm -hmm. is the motivating factor for all human beings. I, I couldn't even imagine trying to survive in Nazi Germany as a scientist, right? Like that is yeah. a very delicate position to be in. Um, yeah, no, it's interesting. It's interesting your last point as well um, about how he could kind of switch sides, you know, mm -hmm. <laughs> that, that, yeah. there was a risk there. And, you know, now we know that he ultimately did end up doing that. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And so this is a, a great segue into, you know, Operation Paperclip specifically, but more interesting is his surrender. So Von Braun leads a team of about 500 staff members, engineers, scientists, mechanics, um, wow. you know, yeah, so really big team that's just specialized in designing and building these rockets. Um, and they decided actually as a group in early 1945 that they were going to surrender to the Americans at the first opportunity they got because they could see the war was going badly and they knew that their lives were at risk. But the Army Chief of Staff essentially ordered them to join the Army and fight. Look, we need every single person. Get on the front lines and fight for your country. So what Von Braun actually did was he fabricated documents for all 500 of his staff members to essentially transport them away from the front lines and to keep them safe. Their team hid 14 tons of documents in a salt mine because they were worried that the SS would destroy them when they realized that, you know, the war was coming to an end. Um, so after the war, they basically told the Americans where all this stuff was and they just went and grabbed it. And they said that that could have shaved years and years off of all the work NASA did because they have, you know, essentially you'd be starting from scratch, all your blueprints, all your calculations would all have to be redone. Um, so another thing is, so it's about April now, the allies are moving deeper into Germany. Um, and there was a order that came down to move Von Braun and his team, um, to a town in the Bavarian Alps where they wanted to guard them. They wanted the SS to guard them just to make sure, um, that they didn't fall into enemy hands with the order that if it looked like they were going to fall into enemy hands to execute every single one of them. So Von Braun. Again, this is this is the charisma the guy has and the brilliance, I think, of him and the way he was able to, you know, become the technical director at 25 and lead this whole rocket program in his late 20s and early 30s was he was able to convince this SS major that, you know, we don't want to put all our guys in one big town because there's bombers coming over all the time and that's a big risk. He goes, let me, let me disperse them amongst some small villages in the area. That'll keep them safe. And the SS leader, the, the major agreed, um, but if essentially what that did was it just kept them out of harm's way so the SS couldn't round them up and kill them. Because as they were starting to retreat, um, the the, Germ the Americans were coming in and Von Braun and his team already kind of knew what they wanted to do. But the war is starting to get to an end here. And it's not quite, um, I would say, they're, they're not quite in where they could surrender to the Americans. But Hitler puts down a, an order where he basically instructs all SS troops to gas all technical men concerned with rocket development. So what he did was he, Von Braun commandeered a train, fled with his technical men to the mountains in South Germany. Um, and essentially the Americans were, had a, their front line in Austria. And the rumor, I thought the rumor actually, I think the way it goes down is the way it's told was Von Braun's brother essentially starts running through the woods, trying to find the Americans, knows a little bit of English, sees him, runs out of the woods and says, basically yells, I'm Werner Von Braun's brother, We're, I am here to surrender. You know, I come in peace, you know, that sort of thing. And then they were in the hands. So this, when it comes to Operation Paperclip, doesn't get much easier than that, right? You're looking for this guy and his brother comes running out of the woods saying like, oh, you found me. Like, it's not even a real game of hide and go seek. It's just walking down the right road at the right time. So there's a quote that Von Braun makes after his capture. And it goes like this. He says, we knew that we created a new means of warfare. 
And the question as to what nation, to what victorious nation we were willing to entrust this brainchild of ours was a moral decision more than anything else. We wanted to see the world spared another conflict such as Germany had just been, been through. And we felt by surrendering such a weapon to people who are guided not by the laws of materialism, but by Christianity and humanity, could such as assure the world to be best secured. So really, when you say materialism, that's communism in a, a one, one light. And then, you know, Christianity, humanity is Western Democrats in, in that sense. So again, he definitely puffed this up and made it very, okay, yeah, look how great I'm coming to America because I love, you know, everything that, that America stands for. So he's now kind of in the hands of the Americans and, you know, free to start, you know, working on, on these rocket projects. That's very interesting. Very, very interesting quote. I was going to make a joke and say, so he went to America. That's interesting. Materialism, Christianity. Those are very <laughs> yes, <exactly>. interesting sentiments <laughs> um, to quote and then go to the States. Just kidding. Mm -hmm. um, I think, yeah, I think that's a good inflection point because I think his sentiment on, you know, this, this idea of the, the brain trust that he's kind of been in charge of and the implications of, of the knowledge that he kind of holds and the impact it could potentially have on, you know, warfare, the, you, the world order, you know, is, is, is quite grand. And I think, I think this kind of, is a good pivot point to look at the broader rationale for Operation Paperclip. So like you said, Paul, um, the war with Germany and Japan is coming to an end. You know, the focal point, you know, for the Americans and the Allies is is kind of shifting towards the Soviet threat. And I found a quote uh, is from a gentleman named George Kennan from February 1946. He was a U.S. diplomat and political analyst. And this quote essentially summarizes the Soviet position on how they foresee things panning out if the U.S. is still in the picture. And it's, it's, quite, it's quite dark. Uh, in summary, we have here in the Soviet Union a uh, political force committed fanatically to the belief that, that with the U.S. there can be no permanent modus vivendi that is desirable and necessary that the internal harmony of our society be disrupted, our traditional way of life be destroyed, the international authority of our state be broken, if Soviet power is to be secure. So if we just take that nugget, right, this reality of today's ally being tomorrow's enemy is rapidly approaching and materializing, you know, in the present day and, in, in, sorry, in the closing of World War II. So you have these ideological differences between the Western powers, mainly the U.S. and Eastern powers, Russia, materializing into what we would, you know, eventually know as the Cold War. And the anticipated success of the Cold War or that next phase in a post-World War II era, you know, not only pitted the feasibility of economic systems against each other, you know, democracy, quote-unquote capitalism uh, versus communism, um, relied greatly on technological innovations. So if we turn back to the closing months of you know, World War II, like you said, Germany is kind of losing the shooting war, but somehow they're still able to continue to produce new technology and advanced weapon systems uh, on the home front. And these included you know, the first operational combat jet, 
rocket power aircraft, air-to-air missiles, superior anti-tank weapons, tanks and tank armors, um, as well as like different types of synthetic fuels and lubricants. And I think there's always this kind of sentiment when we talk about Operation Paperclip, or at least from what I've read, that there was this technological gap, right? That's how I kind of always understood that like the, the, the objective was to bring in Nazi scientists and and technicians to kind of address that gap because the Germans were so far ahead of everybody else when it came to this particular um, when it came to this particular like body of knowledge. And this is something I wanted to like, kind of double down on. So just to paint a picture of what this gap was actually like, I found a couple of quotes um, from his name is Major General Hugh uh, uh, Hugh Ner K N E R R probably butchering that. He was the deputy commander for the administration of U.S. strategic air forces in Europe. He sent a memorandum to his boss, General Carl, Carl Tui Spatz, and this is what it read. Occupation of German scientific and industrial establishments has revealed the fact that we have been alarmingly backwards in many fields of research. If we do not take the opportunity to seize the apparatus and the brains that developed it and put the combination back to work promptly, we will remain several years behind while we attempt to cover a field already exploited. So the gap essentially was wider than most understood at the time. And by all accounts, the Germans were years, if not, you know, a decade or so ahead of all other contemporary countries. Wow. And that's interesting because you look at, and I, I've just kind of noticed this through through life and our working lives, is constraints and scarcity, I find, lead to innovation. We look at Germany, right? They mm-hmm. did not have the industrial power that the United States had, not even close. They didn't have the oil reserves that the United States had, not even close. The U.S., like the, the, the joke always during World War II was, you know, you had the German Tiger tank, this massive, massive tank huge armor, massive gun, really effective, but a gas guzzler. And then you have, you know, and it takes a long time to build, but, you know, it could take out two or three Sherman tanks pretty quickly. And the German soldiers would kind of always joke was, you know, we'd take out one Sherman and the Americans would have three more right behind it because they were just pumping these things out, right? And this American military industrial complex just exploded and the production was insane, right? So, if you're Germany, you got to work with the resources you have. You have a highly, highly educated population. You're going to create these things. And then you're America where you have the insane amount of ability to, you know, you have people like Henry Ford and these great, you know, I don't even know, I guess, organizers and manufacturers who can build things on an industrial Titans scale. Of industry. Yeah, yeah, I love it. Titans of industry. I'm going with that. And yeah. you mix that in with the incredible innovation that you're getting out of Germany. You know, it makes sense where you start to see, you know, programs like NASA and other things come up. And then I think you can even see that with the way the U.S. kind of goes with like the automobile industry, right? Like no competition, lots of resources, these massive, terrible cars for years. And then the Japanese and the Germans who don't have the manufacturing resources start to become more innovative and really almost, you know, cripple the American market for years and and create this global. Yeah, dominate. Yeah, exactly. So, Yeah. yeah, and I think that's. It, it makes sense why Germany was so advanced in that sense, but the conversation of you got so advanced, but if you can't build the thing, is it just, a, you know, it's a prototype at that point. And, um, but again, if you can bring that in with great manufacturing, you can create something quite incredible. 
Well, even on that note too, right? Like, I think that's an interesting point. So there's obviously a an incentive domestically, um, economically to kind of leverage this technology for broader consumer and domestic production goals and objectives. But if, if we kind of look at that more strategic lens, um, especially from Operation paper, Paperclip, right? This is essentially a national security interest now, right? So the U.S. isn't alone in this very unique situation where the technologically superior nation is about to lose the war. And the Soviets and the U.S. are acutely aware of what's shortly going to happen after the war is done, you know, that there's going to be a new world order and spheres of influence are going to be established. So there is like this long-term strategic incentive in draining the brain trust of the German military, industrial, scientific complex, you know, for your own self-interest. And I think, you know, again, not just for the U.S., but for Russia, also also France, they're dealing with a kind of moral complexity in their decision. And the U.S. is obviously wrestling with what to do with the German and Nazi scientists. The Soviet Union is moving pretty fast. They're offering powerful monetary and career inducements to lure scientists into their side. Or they're just like wholesale kidnapping people, which they <laughs> did do as well. Uh, you know, France is turning a blind eye to scientists with painted pass. So it puts the U.S. in this kind of, uh, you, you know, um, conundrum where on paper they have this very um, strict anti-Nazi policy. But is it worth upholding that, again, from a national security perspective, if German scientists fall into the hands of the Soviets? And I think that's ultimately the next question from my perspective in terms of the not just the objectives of operation paperclip but could the u.s allow the brain trust of the german military industrial complex into soviet hands and there was this super interesting memorandum i found um it's from the jic so the joint intelligence committee and this is i think this is super telling i think this this for me was kind of the nail in the coffin in terms of why the um, operation was committed to and ultimately executed. So the, the memorandum reads, unless the migration of important German scientists and technicians into the Soviet zone is immediately stopped, we believe that the Soviet Union with a relatively short time may equal the United States developments in the field of atomic research and guided missiles and may be ahead of U.S. development in other fields of great military importance, including infrared, television, and jet propulsion. In the field of atomic research, by uh, for example, we estimate that German assistance already has cut substantially, probably by several years, the time needed for the USSR to achieve practical results. Wow. They ultimately made three recommendations. One, prevent the German scientists falling into Soviet hands. Two, the American army in Germany should give the scientists and their families all the provisions they needed. And three, that the American military governor in Germany should immediately compile a list of 1,000 scientists and technicians qualified in the fields of aerospace 
and other strategically important fields useful for the United for for the US. It's pretty cut and dry, right? Just give me a list and, and get them here, or at least get them, maybe not necessarily get them here, but make sure the Soviets, you know, don't get their hands on it. And I think, you know, we have to think back to, of, you know, the war was ending, but I think everybody realized, like we'd already talked about that, the next war began almost before World War II even ended. And people in their heads are, well, World War III is right around the corner, so we got to get ready. And we got to make sure that the Soviet Union doesn't get powerful enough. And then we have to remember, like, they won, you know, part one of the space race, you know, first first satellite in the um in space first man in space um just the u.s got got to the moon quicker so like i I sit here and it's like ethically okay let's think of it ethically right like do you bring in nazis and i think we've established that are you a card-carrying nazi or do you believe in the ideology and did you act on that ideology or kind of like the three different levels i think think this is why the ethical conversation is so complicated right because you have to be able to parse out the individual from you have to be able to parse out the actions of the individual and kind of compartmentalize them in a way to do this kind of analysis <laughs> with even an iota of success because right. i don't think ultimately there is any like successful analysis of it but all we <laughs> can do is try our best of kind of deciphering and dissecting this very complicated reality yeah and i think it's think you we have to remember too like this wasn't get everybody we possibly can, no matter who they are. They they did have a filter. This wasn't, was no, they definitely, yeah, yeah. yeah, there was people they went through and they looked at and they were like, oh, heck no, that's, that person's uh, got a really, really nasty past and we don't want anything to do with them. Um, but I think it's, yeah, those people who are kind of on the fence, you know, the, the Von Braun's of the world. There was also um, Arthur Rudolph who worked um, with Von Braun and he actually, kind of was more influential into bringing slave labor into that, into that concentration camp slash factory kind of recommended that they bring Jewish slave labor in. And he went to the U S worked for NASA for years. And then at some point people started to realize who this guy was. And he, I think he voluntarily gave up his citizenship and went back to Germany. They basically deported him after like 60, you know, 60 years, like 40 years or something like that. So there's some people definitely slipped through the cracks. How much did they know? How much did they not know? But what was the alternative? Like, I think it gets really interesting if there was somebody who came over who has a very checkered past, who it's like the option was we get them or the Soviets get them. What do you do in that situation? And, you know, do you, the ethics of bringing them over are, are definitely not good, but where does the national security, and I guess this is questions like, you know, the CIA and all the work that they do in terms of doing really, really immoral things, but with the, hey, it's national security. I'm sure you could go through the history of the CIA and you could, point to a lot of really good decisions and a lot of really horrible ones. But I think that's what it comes down to, right? Like, are you getting a net benefit for the United States by making this decision? Maybe, maybe not. I don't know. Yeah, I think that's definitely a line of analysis. So I think I'll just on that note, right? Like, so on paper, I read that it was anywhere from 1400 to 1600 Nazi German, German, Nazi Germany scientists or technicians were brought over. That's the number on paper, right? Would I be surprised if that number is a bit larger? Like, not really. You know, this is just how this is how secret operations typically work. <laughs> not usually the most transparent. Um, but in that same breath, so if we kind of turn our conversations to Soviets, I think it, it helps kind of like a, a bit of the checks and balances around this discussion as to 
kind of frame it against what the Soviets were doing. So uh, in parallel, our, uh, the Soviet uh, regime under, what was his name? Uh, Colonel General I.A. Serov. He was the Russian uh, commandant of East Berlin. He initiated Operation Osvakim. It was a wholesale kidnapping of 15,000. 15,000 German scientists and technicians. It began at 4 a.m. on October 22nd, 1946. Wow. Battalions of Russian soldiers sealed off neighborhoods in East Berlin. Hundreds of arrest squads systematically, you know, combed over apartment complexes, smashed down doors, took away husbands and sons into waiting trucks around the corner. They were taken to railway stations and then they were transported to Russia where they would be employed for oh, five years. <sighs> like even by Soviet standards, those those are some pretty big numbers. And again, 50, you, we, you know, and you look at Nuts. the whole gulag system that they had in all those prison camps and work camps that they had in Russia, you know, you did air quotes for employed is I guarantee you some of them ended up there and who knows, you know, what kind of happened to these people. But then again, who were these guys, right? Are they terrible Nazis or were they just some guy who knew how to, f was really good at fixing tanks and, uh, you know, the Soviets knocked on his door one morning, like I think you have and everybody in between. So you really don't know until yeah. again, like you have to go down to that individual, but my goodness, like I, I literally 10 times more. And it was more just like a, it's like clear cutting a forest, right? If we just take all these guys and 1% <laughs> of them stick, that might be good where the Americans are much more targeted, right? Because they actually had, you know, some follow, right? If some really horrible Nazis slip through the cracks, like they're going to hear about it where in the Soviet Union, that's just not even a thing that they have to yeah. worry about. Yeah, it's. A, I think if anything, it doesn't necessarily make the analysis easier. I think it only further complicates the mm -hmm. ethical and moral calculus that we are attempting to do right now as to whether this decision was the right one to right. execute Operation Paperclip. Uh, more like, a, yeah, I think there's two sides to me here. And the, the easier side is the, the, not the easier side. I don't think I should necessarily say easier, but I think the more, the clearer choice would be if I look at it from the perspective perspective of national security, then you do, then you, then you do it. You hundred percent. Can I counter with something for national security? Sure. Yeah. What if you have to think of it too? Like you're thinking of external, right? Protecting from the Soviets. Yes. But if you bring in a yeah. bunch of these nuts who are oh, hardcore Nazis, well, and now they're within the military, right? And you have oh. to remember, look where, where, look where the United States is in 1945. This is a not, again, we talked about it last week with, you know, um, Abraham Lincoln and, and everything that happened with, um, you know, slavery and stuff like that. Like, again, we're not even a hundred years out from the civil war. Racism is still, you know, all over the place in the United States. You have a very deep German ethnicity within the United States that goes back over the last few hundred years. You bring a lot of these guys over, they ingrain themselves within the military, you know, can't say they're Nazis, but can they get halfway there? Can they get 75% of the way there? Can they say, hey, we're not going to be That's openly anti-Semitic, but we can be it behind the scenes and nobody really cares, right? That, I think, is another thing that, you know, you have to think about is coming from within versus, you know, protecting from the Soviets.
Oh, dude, that that's a good one. Um, that's a very, very good one. I, I, that I think, yeah, that's a calculated risk. Mm-hmm. You know, I, and I think this would again, if I'm looking at what we just discussed and what our kind of research found is, it seemed that there was a lot more uh, calculation and mm-hmm. intention with the scientists that were brought over from the onto the American side. Right. Um, I think if it was kind of that wholesale approach of employing people, quote unquote, for five years, <laughs> that the Russians did, <laughs> yeah. um, I think that risk would be much larger. Um, but yeah, I, I told like, I think, again, it's so complicated, right, to because of those, you know, 14, 1600, you know, whatever the number is, the actual number is scientists that were that were brought into the US as a part of Operation Paperclip. I'd be confident saying at least some of them were probably anti-Semites and racists, right? They just happen mm-hmm. to be really good scientists as yeah, well. Exactly. And that, that, that kind of justified, uh, what was the, so one of the, the websites I was looking at, they had titled their analysis of Operation Paperclip as the deal with the devil. I don't know if that's necessarily true, but it, it sounds good. And I think it gets at the heart of this, the, the complication, which is, we're essentially making a deal with one of the most evil regimes in modern history. Mm-hmm. Right. Yeah. Um, but like, again, like, I don't know. I want to flip back to maybe Von Braun for a second here and just look at like, mm-hmm. okay, we brought in somebody. What did we get out of it? Right. And I think when we look at Von Braun, it's like, if I look at the decision to bring him in and what he was able to accomplish, cause we talk about like how advanced they were, like what he was able to accomplish, like, so he worked for the military and for NASA, NASA until his death in, in 1972. What was super interesting about all this, and we talked about how is this going to look if we brought Nazi scientists over. Nobody really knew much about von Braun when he came over. No, the public didn't know much about him either. A lot of that stuff was kind of buried um, between yeah. military secrecy and just stuff had not really been fully researched yet in Nazi Germany. It's not so well after his death that people really started to understand about the rocket program and how it all brought into it, the concentration camps and stuff. So some people kind of argue that like his legacy is strong because he died a lot younger than, than some of these other guys. Um, I think he had cancer, he had colon cancer, colon cancer, something like believe, that. Right? Yeah. Yeah. Something yeah. like that. So the whole thing is like, there's that piece to it, but like he was the key contributor to the Apollo programming and getting, you know, America to the moon. They say just having him, his ability to manage and his ability to just be obsessed with rockets, you know, cut years off America getting to the moon and ultimately winning that, that leg of the space race. Something that I kind of found interesting. And it was a picture that kind of got me a little shivered a little bit was for whatever reason, he just loved, he wanted like space and space travel and, and NASA to have all of this like fanfare. He wanted to get people interested in space. So who does he team up with? He teams up with Disney to start creating educational films about space and all that kind of stuff. And there's a picture just with him and Walt Disney, who we know with Walt Disney, known anti-Semite. It just kind of was like, I'm pretty like, sure Walt Disney be... received a, a, was it an order of the cross from the Nazi party? I wouldn't be surprised. Yeah. So like that kind of stuff was okay. doesn't look great when you look at it after the fact, but the fact that he kind of was such a key contributor um, and all of this stuff, and was, you know, JFK knew who he was and all this kind of stuff. Like he was a key piece to the whole rocket program. But yeah, there's some I funny... saw pictures of him with JFK. 
when I was mm -hmm. when I was reading about him. Yeah, that's pretty Wild. crazy. Yeah. yeah, and so like he's again leading thousands and thousands of engineers building building these rockets and became a, a very key piece to this. And there's actually a funny story. They said when he was brought over um, to the United States, they basically stuck him in Alabama and had him kind of doing some smaller scale stuff while they kind of figured out what the heck they were doing with their rocket program. Um, so he's hanging out with a, a lot of GIs and, and military um, folks. And so he eventually comes to the Pentagon to start talking strategy and that kind of stuff. And they said his English was still quite poor because he never learned English in Germany. And they said his English was just a combination of GI slang and a lot of swearing. I said, because that's how he learned English, right? He was sitting with these GIs all day and they're just foul mouth like crazy. Now he's sitting oh, up with these good. suit and tie, you know, people in the CIA and the FBI and, you know, Department of whatever, and just kind of, you know, rifling off all this crazy stuff. But this is the most interesting thing. And I was telling you this story offline. I think this is just a lot of fun. So he wrote a book in 1949 called Project Mars, A Technical Tale. And the preface or the preface said to stimulate interest in space travel. So he essentially writes a book that's 48 chapters about humanity taking a flotilla of 10 spacecraft and 70 crew members from Earth to Mars. And it is the most like you can, the, like the most technical fiction book you'll ever read. Like it, you can find it online. Um, I kind of flipped through it a bit, and it'd be like, yeah, they took off um, from this location with x kilotons of thrusts and then went up at an angle of 10 degrees for 37 seconds until they reached the whatever sphere and then they were into space and then like they had their oxygen levels at this and like this is just him writing a manual on how to go from earth to mars but kind of kept it fun but the most interesting thing is they get to mars and they find out that martians are real that's pretty cool i guess um and they're, they're these super humanoid creatures who have, they take ethnic ethics and moral uh, morality very seriously. That's like their whole thing. And they believe that technology should always be used responsibly, which I think is super interesting and can go into another talking point. I think we should get into a little bit about, about scientists is, you know, how they kind of treat technology. But these Martians are led by a, a council of 10 men and they have a leader. And what is that leader's name? His name is Elon which I think is just insane. You know, this, you know, he wrote this in 1949, right? So, and it was only published, I think, like in the last 20 years, it was kind of like, he tried to get it published. It didn't get published. Now it comes out and everyone was reading it going, I'm sorry, he was called what? Elon, this, this rocket guy who writes a book names the Supreme leader of Mars, Elon, which I think is After super another fun. rocket guy. Yeah. Yeah, yeah exactly. That's... Right. So I think that's super interesting. And there's, it was one point I wrote down here and, um, I was thinking back to just scientists and engineers in general um, and how they have this obsession with their craft and they yeah. cannot give it up. And sometimes we'll do terrible things to just get, get done what they need to get done because they almost turn off that morality side in their brain. Um, so there's a, a similar German that actually went through something like this. His name was Fritz Haber. And this is a really interesting story. So he won the Nobel Prize in Chemistry in 1918. And he created a process which essentially synthesizes ammonium from nitrogen and hydrogen gas. And why that's important is because it essentially created um, a much higher yield of fertilizer that was incredibly mm -hmm. effective. I think I have it here. It is estimated that today one-third of annual food production uses ammonium from his process and supports nearly half the world's population. So this wow. guy, his invention... Um, created this yeah changed the world some say he's the greatest chemist of all time 
But then World War One comes along, and he goes, he being a patriot, saying, I'm going to sign up and do what I need. They go, yeah, we want a new weapon. So what does he do? He creates a ridiculously good gas to gas the enemy. So he basically creates the first form of mustard gas and all these terrible, terrible say. weapons that come out of World War One, right? But here's the thing. Like, is he a bad person for doing this? Or is he just so committed to what his duty is, number one, as being a true German patriot at the time, and just being an obsessive scientist about, like, I'm given a task. How do I kill as many enemy soldiers as quickly as possible? Oh, I can create a gas. I'm really good at creating those kind of things. Can I do it effectively for my country? But also because it's a challenge. It's a scientific challenge. And I think just some guys are wired in that sense of just, like, I got to figure out how to do this and don't really have the understanding of what the long-term complications could be and what they're actually doing. So I'm not saying that Haber or, or Von Braun are like this, but I think they're more along that side of the spectrum than, you know, you know, us average Joes would be. Yeah, I would agree with that. And I think when I was listening to you speak about that particular example, Oppenheimer immediately came to mind yep. as an American example. Mm -hmm. Right. Um, I think yeah, it's tough, man. I, I think, when it comes to scientists and engineers and especially at that level, right? Like we're not mm -hmm. talking about like your undergrad or your even your graduate. <laughs> yeah. We're talking about like the, some of the greatest minds of all time working on world altering technologies mm -hmm. at that level, the obsession, the fanaticism, and I will, I, and I, and I use that word intentionally because I think there is a lot of fanaticism at that level and rightfully so, because these are such massively complex and impactful technologies that there's always this kind of, there's this risk of putting blockers up, you know, to mm -hmm. justify that means to an end. And I think with technology, it's easy and easy for those blinders to come up when you have someone who is just so obsessed and interested and dedicated to, to completing, mm -hmm. you know, what they, what they might see as their life's work, that mm -hmm. they're willing to put up those moral and ethical blinders to accomplish their goals. Mm -hmm. It doesn't make it right. No, it doesn't make it right. But I, I think there are examples of that. I think we just, we just talked about three, um, two German, one American. And I think mm -hmm. you know, like that, that that's why this, this kind of analysis is so, is so tricky. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And it's just, it's interesting to me just because I just think of like the psychology and, and the wiring of someone's brain to be so smart, but I think it's maybe not the intelligence that does it. It's the devotion and the, almost like a unhealthy obsession. Like everything you read about Von Braun was from the moment anybody talked to this guy, it was, I want to build rockets. I want to go to space. That's all he's ever wanted, right? And so I, I wonder with with someone like him, and I come back to walking through those slave facilities. He's human. I'm. I really hope he wasn't cold and dead inside and just didn't even notice it. But I feel like someone who's wired in that way can probably put a blind eye to that because he's so unhealthily obsessed with with his goal. So. Again, does it make it right? Absolutely not. But I just think it's interesting how different people kind of come, come across this. And we see it right with you add in duty on top of that duty to your country. Yeah. I think it changes things. So I think the, yeah, so I think I know the, like, what, what decision point and where mm -hmm. does, where does, 
where does your brain go here or your heart so, depending yeah. on how you're looking at it because i think there's two i think there's two ways to approach this there's so the one thing that i get held up on is with von braun is he never spoke about it and really expressed a lot of guilt and so when i first saw that i was like aha got you like you have to have come <laughs> up and realized like you know i did these you know I, I had to do these things you know he mentioned it in passing but he never really came out and, and spoke openly about it and said like look at apologize to the Jewish community and everybody that went through this, like this was awful and terrible, you know, but this is just kind of the situation that it was in and dealt with it. So at first I thought of that and I was like, okay, that's not great. But then I started to realize that like, nobody knew that was a thing until after he died. And I kind of put myself in his shoes. Like if I had a really sketchy past, I had everything I've ever wanted in my life. I'm putting people in space. I'm building rockets and no one's really questioning me about my past. Gonna I'm probably going to shut my mouth and I'm going to do what I need to do. Right. So You're I come back with you. Yeah. Take it yeah. to the grave. Yeah. So I, I come to it with my heart and again, being an engineer myself, I'm, I will admit I'm biased here. I, I want, I see people like him and they just, they're inspiring on their dedication and, and the accomplishments are, you know, when we look at the great engineers of the world, like he's got to be in the top 10, top 20 of all time. Like it's, it's next level. Yeah. I just feel terrible in my head saying, yeah, you know, it was the right decision because of all the pain and suffering that happened under his watch is probably not the right way to do it, but like to fulfill a goal that he was trying to achieve, even if his hands were tied, I just don't want to let him off the, the leash because of just like, can't think of anybody who suffered through that. Like I, it's unspeakable horrors, but at the same time, it's like, I'm trying to put my brain towards it. And I'm like, I think it was the right decision i think to bring him in ethically can i clear him of everything definitely not yeah. but i don't know it's a it's a struggle and it's a hard decision i think were they i think i will say yeah they were were the, they were they correct to bring von braun in i think so and i think they really didn't have a choice he kind of ran into their arms and said here i am um, <laughs> take me <laughs> yeah take me away from here um but yeah i think there's yeah, you can't just look at it being like, oh, yeah, it was the right decision. No problem. Like, there's definitely something you have to think about. And, like, what is your moral obligation to anybody who touched any part of, you know, yeah, one of the worst regimes that has ever existed and may ever exist? Yeah, that's where my, I think ultimately, I I, I think it's a bit of a cop out, to be honest with you. But yeah. I, I can't, I think, <laughs> and I'm sorry to our listeners, but I, I, I have mm -hmm. to approach it two ways, which is one, I am definitely a, a pragmatist. That is definitely the school of philosophy I fall into <laughs> as like how I live my life as a pragmatist. When I'm doing this research and I'm talking to you, Paul, about this, my mind immediately goes to this kind of rationale behind Operation Paperclip. I look at the, the, the national security interest. I put myself in the shoes of military and intelligence leaders and I, I would do the same thing. I would yeah. be in favor of Operation Paperclip. I would bring them over, especially the way that they did it. I think everything that is kind of materializing in that post-World War era, post-World War II era is, is kind of pushing that, pushing you in that direction anyways. You know, the Russians are doing it. It's mm -hmm. all about self-interest and self-preservation. You know, there's nothing more pragmatic than self-preservation. Um, so I get it from a national security perspective. I think it's the right mm -hmm. move. Morally and ethically, however, <laughs> I do have a heart, despite what some people may think. Um, <laughs> I, 
would be very hard pressed to bring over anyone affiliated or associated with the Nazi party. I, mm. I don't think I could make that decision on ethics or morality because I don't see how you can, I just, I genuinely don't see how you can justify that personally. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And we even talked to about like, okay, what happened to the Jewish communities in, in those areas and the Holocaust and the, the horrors of that. But like also as a military person making this decision, you have a responsibility to your fallen soldiers who literally died to destroy the ideology and destroy this regime. Yeah. And now you're going to bring these guys over again. When you look at it black and white like that, like, you know, if I lost someone in that war, or if I'm a veteran who went over there and lost friends, um, to, to destroy the Nazis and you're bringing these guys over, like it definitely is, didn't, wouldn't have made some people happy, which is probably why it was such a secretive, um, operation. But then again, we look at all the reasons of like, what are the alternatives I think is the most important way to look at it was Soviets get them. That's pretty much it. Really. The, the Soviets are going to find a way to get them and they're going to make them work for them or they managed to you know, stay in hiding for years. But uh, I don't know. Yeah, this is something I'm going to still be thinking about for the rest of the evening and, and maybe for, for years to come. But it's a, it's an interesting one. And I, I think I think the biggest challenge and I keep coming back to is like when we talk about, you know, things in history that happened a thousand years ago, we can brush it off because it's just so long ago where it was like, that was that time. And, oh, yeah, they so definitely should have you know, executed time, right? these prisoners, right? Like. Yeah. People who are still alive, right, who experienced all this, people have grandparents that were, could have been in those camps that were killed, brothers, sisters, like, it's so fresh. And, like, we still fully don't know everything that happened, you know, during that time. Things, you know, we, I think we got a good amount of information, but we still don't know. And I think, I think that's where our, you know, your morality will hold up is, like, you know, your your neighbor could have experienced some of this stuff and makes it feel a little, if you, you feel a little kind of dirty by saying, yeah, yeah, it was all good. Don't worry about it even if it was the right yeah, decision, exactly. but, you know, transport us 500 yeah. years in the future. I guarantee you this conversation is, is different. Um, yeah. maybe, maybe not because I hope no, nothing worse than the Nazi party ever exists in the next 500 <laughs> years. Hopefully that was like the yeah. peak and it's just downhill from here, but you never know. We always seem to outdo ourselves. So we uh, do do that. I will not hold my breath. Um, <laughs> I remain optimistic, but I, yeah, sure. I think to your point, um, you know, maybe like a closing thought would be this type of, of analysis is, is very difficult. There is no right answer. You know mm -hmm. what I mean? This is just a, the thought exercise that you and I are doing, yeah. um, uh, for the sake of content creation and doing historical analysis, just mm -hmm. to kind of, you know, show our audience and anyone who's interested that these types of conversations are worth, ha worth having, um, they do challenge you on that kind of pragmatic logical level, but then also, you know, add that layer of complexity, which is the one that includes moral morality and ethics, mm -hmm. which will always make decision-making more difficult. Yeah. Once you add feelings in, into your decision-making <laughs> process, things get messy, right? That yeah. is just the nature of, of decision-making. But I think, um, as far as this conversation goes, I think it, it, it really gets at the heart of, of, um, having tough uncomfortable historical conversations right. about decisions that are made, the legacies that they leave and how they ultimately impact, you know, um, mm -hmm. society, whether it's net good or, or net bad. 
Agreed. Yeah. And I think what you, what you said was, you know, it's complicated and it's not easy in these kind of conversations. Yep. And I think you probably felt it too. As I was thinking about this, sometimes I'd be like, yeah, yeah, it was the right decision or yeah, it was the wrong decision. And then, you know, the other side of my brain would be like, you can't think like that. That's, that's not allowed. Like that's, you know, your morality kind of kicks in and, and questions you. And I think that's why these conversations are, are hard, but so fascinating. So I think this one, I, I, again, will, I would love to revisit one day. I'm sure as we, as we look into more decisions and, and start to see these themes come up and this one, I think, yeah, I think for most of the conversations we've had, we've at least had not a concrete answer, but at least leaned in one direction. And I think here, maybe we're leaning more towards it was the right decision, but I think it's, it's probably the most, you know, uncomfortable right decision yeah. I've ever made. Yeah. I don't feel yeah. good about it. No, I don't walk <laughs> I don't away from here going like, you know what? I feel dirty. Good thing they did this. Dirty. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So definitely going to take a shower after this one and, <laughs> you know, clean it off. But you no, know, this has been a great conversation, Richie. And I hope everybody listening is kind of, is going to be rattling their brain a little bit more and, and challenging themselves on, on decisions like this and, and kind of thinking more around, um, you know, where that line between morality and, and making the quote unquote right decision come into play, because it's a theme that will continue with more episodes. And I'm sure this will be the first of many where we're going to go, we're racking our brain going like, darn, this is a tough one. Let's it's too tough. Yeah. Let's see what we can come through. But yeah, this has been a great conversation, Richie. So, um, thanks for having it with me and, uh, yeah, thanks for everybody for listening and, uh, until next time. Thanks everyone. Thank you so much for listening to the History in Motion podcast. We appreciate your support. And if you're a fan of what you heard, please like, subscribe, and share. And we'll see you next time.